Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to another episode of The Playlist Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Barfield, Managing Editor at The Playlist. And I have to say before we get to this episode that I'm sorry I haven't been more active with podcasts lately, to be honest, and to pull back the curtain a little bit. My wife and I just had another child a couple of weeks ago, and as you might expect, it's been a bit chaotic around the house. But that isn't going to stop me from conducting a couple of horror-focused interviews that I'll have for you this Halloween. And the first one is a great interview I had recently with Joe Lynch, the director of the new erotic horror thriller Suitable Flesh. Yes, you heard that right. Suitable Flesh is a film that mixes seemingly disparate genres of horror and erotic thriller. The film stars Heather Graham as a psychiatrist who finds herself inexplicably drawn to a new, incredibly troubled young patient. Little does she know her attraction to this young man would lead to a horrific Lovecraftian body swap where she becomes possessed with some sort of entity who just wants to smoke cigarettes, have sex and commit gruesome murders. If that doesn't clue you in on what to expect, then let me tell you flat out, Suitable Flesh is a wild ride. But that's not all you need to know about Suitable Flesh. In our discussion, I asked Joe Lynch about the origins of the film, which began its life as a Lovecraft story that was going to be directed by legendary horror horror filmmaker Stuart Gordon. However, after his passing in 2020, Lynch took over and created a film that he calls a love letter to the master. In addition to talking about Gordon's influence, we also discussed the erotic thriller influence and the impact of gender flipping the genre's tropes. What does an 80s or 90s erotic thriller look like if the protagonist is an older woman? We discuss. And if that wasn't enough, Joe Lynch and I talk about his 2013 short film, Truth in Journalism, which is a wonderful Venom short film based on the Marvel comic. And we end the interview in the best possible way, raving about our love of RoboCop. Honestly, this is one of the most fun interviews I've had in a long time, so I hope you guys enjoy it. But before I play the interview, i got to tell you the Playlist Podcast is part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes Deep Focus, The Discourse, Bingeworthy, and more. And if you want to find us, you can check your podcast app of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, anywhere else you find your favorite shows. Okay, without any further ado, here's my interview with Joe Lynch, the director of Suitable Flesh, which is hitting theaters and VOD on October 27th. Enjoy. I got to start by saying I love your your manic board behind you. Oh, yes. The uh, the the ever evolving uh, chalkboard that usually becomes uh, like either a list of movies we need to watch, movies we've watched and I can cross out happily or random uh, quotes from Burt Reynolds or random quotes <laughs> of me talking about Burt Reynolds movies. <laughs> That's a little so, yeah, it's, it's, it's always nice to like my my wife and I. Um, we are movie nerds and uh, we're constantly coming up with like, oh my God, you've never seen Blue Steel, Catherine Bigelow's Blue Steel. And she would be like, you know, like, wait, you haven't seen, uh, you know, Barefoot Contessa, you know, and all the, all the like, like I, I cover her with um, all of the kind of sleazier 80s movies. <laughs> and then she, she regales me with all of the, um, like all the classics, even though she's a huge horror hound herself and she's watched her share of like, all we talk about lately is like, when, when can we watch Tale of Two Sisters again? 
Um, oh, such a good like one. Our, our perfect first date um, in terms of like movie night was um, she brought the uh, screwball comedy, My Man Godfrey, and I brought Lucio Fulci's New York Ripper, which shockingly go really well together. Yeah. I, I don't know how that, you know, that, how that worked out, but uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's still my favorite, like at least, primer for how we would you know kind of uh, teach each other about movies that we love and uh and, and we've been writing on the board ever since so we my wife and i have a similar thing we have a piece of paper on a on a cork board because we have the same thing where i'm like oh you need to watch this you need to watch this and interestingly yep. enough our first movie date we went to the theater and saw the evil dead remake uh <laughs> Ooh, wow Holy yeah cow. quite the quite the first movie date but uh it worked and you're out still well. together we are still we together. are That's decade later did. Um, yeah. our first movie, like the first movie that we saw together was uh, Jack Shoulders, the hidden, um, at the Alamo, which like, I was, like, I love that movie. And, and we actually, my, uh, podcast movie crypt hosted a, a screening of that and she had never seen it before. And we made the fateful, unfortunate, fateful decision to eat too many fried pickles that night. So it wasn't <laughs> like the most enjoyable experience <laughs> after, but at least during it was great. And then I think. The next time before the world shut down, we went to go see Friday Friday the 13th Part 5 at the New Bev at a Friday 2 p.m. matinee, and it was sold out. And now I've always, like, unabashedly loved that movie to the point of apologizing to people for it. Same. Um, but when you, when you go and see that movie with a crowd, first off, it plays like gangbusters with a crowd because that's the movie, and I'm sorry if we're going to tangent here, but... Um, <laughs> You know, that movie, I still think, holds up so well because when you start getting into the supernatural side of Jason, like the stakes are lower because it's like, well, he can never die. Yeah. But when you get past the fact that it's not Jason, it's Ray the ambulance driver and it's a real dude, the, like, the fun of it being just a good old fashioned like sleeve for 80s slasher movie plays so much better. And it's also weird as hell, too. It so is. like. It was most of the like most of the crowd were there was like very gay and like which in a great way you know we were all just like everybody's hooting and hollering and realizing like wow there's a lot of leather in this movie <laughs> kind of crazy but that was another movie where we were like the fact that we went to go see this together and we enjoyed it and we want to hang out more was very uh very much a testament to the longevity that we've had ever since and it's never been on the board because we're always watching it. That's awesome. So, so that kind of segues into a, my first uh, thought here. I want to talk to you about because I, I love, I love how Friday the Thirteenth Part Five was the perfect segue. Well, this yeah, is be a great conversation. Well, just I, I, I fashion myself a pretty big horror fan, um, and I, I've seen a lot of those '80s horror movies. And you kind of going into this movie, you can't not talk about this movie and and not talk about Stuart Gordon and Reanimator mm -hmm. and his sort of Lovecraft universe. And uh, I don't know if people listening to this really will will go into suitable flesh knowing the history, but I think they'd be better off knowing it. So can you tell me how you got involved and, and how Stuart Gordon of all people is, uh, is tied to this? Well, Stuart, this was going to be a Stuart Gordon production, uh, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> it was one that he was, because he had a, a long history with Lovecraft because of, Reanimator and From Beyond and Dagon and Castle Freak, two episodes of um, Masters of Horror that he had done. And these were all films that he had done uh, with a lot of the same team, in, uh, including Dennis Paoli and Brian Usna. Uh, a lot of times uh, Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs were involved. That was kind of his company. And especially when it, when, when it came to Lovecraft, 
there weren't many filmmakers out there that figured out and cracked the code of how you can present Lovecraft in a way that is that feels faithful to you know to the original um, author's work, but becomes its own beast in a way. It, it like it's this like wonderful mutation. And when Stuart um, and Dennis were working on this film years ago, almost like fifteen years ago, they started working on this. I had heard about it as a fan from him at a Masters of Horror dinner when I was sitting next to him. And again, like any chance that I can, you know, kind of eavesdrop in on like a wait you're getting the band back together like tell me more and you know i i was so excited as a fan and then when we lost Stuart in 2020 it was one of those things where well I guess we're never gonna see that fully realized but i had known the story you know it's one of those original body swap tales that has you know kind of turned into comedy fodder in like the 80s with like 18 again and uh freaky friday and stuff um so i was really excited to see what his version of that was going to be, and if you know Stewart's work, he uh, he's very much a provocateur. He dabbles, you know, he dabbles in both the like very dark black sense of humor and mixes that with violence and sex, and creates this like genre bouillabaisse base that feels like the perfect bowl to serve Lovecraft to an unsuspecting public. And when Barbara Crampton emailed me about this, um, literally like two months after Stewart had died. And just kind of floated the idea of, would you be interested in doing this? And I got equally excited and scared because excited, like, wow, they thought of me. And supposedly the, the Lord has it that Stuart actually mentioned my name when he was talking about who would kind of take the mantle. Personally, I think he said David Lynch, but maybe something <laughs> got garbled in the way. But then, you know, so there was excitement over the fact that I was being, you know, blessed with the opportunity. But I was also really nervous because knowing Stewart's work so well and knowing what fan base he has and how much people revere his work, I was also terrified to screw it up. But knowing how much I loved his work, but also that we share a lot of the same sensibilities, I felt like I got to give it a shot. And that was put to the test from the first moment that I turned the first page and then finished the script. I went, you know, this is cool. I like the concept and I love the fact that it I can tie it into the Miskatonic verse like Reanimator and From Beyond with all the little Easter eggs. All my notes at first were just like, you can make it in the same hospital and you can bring <laughs> back the same security guard, or at least make it as kid or, you know, like have these little flourishes that if you know those movies, it'll be a nice little wink and a nudge. But at the same time, I was like, but, it, you know, I always knew Stuart as being a little bit dangerous and then pushing buttons in a way that never alienates the audience, but it makes the, it engages them when that button is pressed. And I felt like the fact that the, the original script was two men in the lead roles and a young woman as uh, Azeneth at the time, it felt old fashioned. It felt out of date. It felt like it wasn't going to be the kind of provocation cinema that I, I was as a fan looking for when I even heard about the project. So that's kind of when little, little Stuart popped in my head and said, what if you made it two girls? Um, or two women, so so to speak. And that's where I went, you know, that's the sort of thing that if we change it like that, it it felt like it could be dangerous again. And that sucks that, you know, like you could say that just gender flipping, you know, the, the two lead roles would be considered dangerous. It shouldn't be dangerous that, you know, two women are the lead roles and that they're older women and that they're engaging in sexual relations and that they, you know, they're putting themselves in these situations that, in most cases, if men were in it, no one would bat an eyelash. 
Um, it sucks that we're at that point in, you know, in culture, but at the same time, it felt like it was the right time for that. And that's when I got really excited about doing the part uh, or, or doing the, uh, the movie and really wanting to, while making it my own and, and satisfying my own cinematic fetishes and my own cinematic kinks, but still be able to pay tribute to a man that honestly changed the way I saw movies at a very pivotal time in my life when I was a kid, when I was absorbing every form of horror and genre possible, like in the, or in the mid eighties, when splatter was a huge thing, when you had movies like evil dead two and reanimator and return of the living dead and um, blood simple and all these movies that were blending genres and even blending tones. And Stuart was one of those directors that I always went back to and said, he knew how to do that balance. And if I could do, at least a semblance of that and and you know tip my hat and make this a love letter to the master then you know i'm i'm paying back for what he gave back to me so so let's talk about that because there are two kind of disparate genres at play in suitable flesh there's the lovecraft oh, yeah. horror and then there's this like late 80s early 90s erotic thriller and those don't seem that seems oil and water on paper but you make it work in this kind of funny sexy gory film so what was it like threading that needle and the, the tone i'm glad that you mentioned that because i always saw this as like a horror peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> um where you would sit there and like i'm sure anybody who went like at first went like peanut butter and jelly that makes no sense or like you know pineapple on pizza what the fuck is that um but then you you tap it you take a bite and you go actually those play off really well when i was first developing the script further um you know the way it played out because sex was such a major component of the story and the characters you know when we were first casting the film we were getting pushbacks and we were getting passes from the actors because of the sex and at one point uh you know a, a, a name actor you know came along and, and they were interested in the film and the their only note was could we take the sex out because i, I don't feel comfortable with this element and you know no harm no foul but I had to say no, because with if you don't have the chemical relation between these people and the literal, like not just, you know, sexual fluidity, but the body fluidity of these acts being in, you know, kind of consequential to the story, then I don't think you had a story. And it wasn't a story that I wanted to tell. And frankly, I do miss sex in movies. You know, I don't miss it when you can just go on the, online and go clickety clack and there you go. I, like, I want to be like James Horner, like James Horner, not not the composer, Jack Horner from Boogie Nights, where he's like, I want people to revel in the story and the characters, not just go for the sets. So knowing that it was such a huge component, the more and more that we started watching movies that were, you know, considered like erotica, especially in the 80s and 90s, I started to absorb all of these you know, languages of these movies, everything from, you know, slightly more pastel colors, you know, a little more drab, but, you know, you know, little, little atmosphere in the background, the sexy sacks, the, the angles, the, the lighting, you know, we were even just down to the blocking and the compositions. I wanted to, it, the, the, the biggest thing that I'm really proud of with the movie is that I feel like, I don't know how you feel, but I'm sure many of your listeners feel the same way I do, but I dream in cinema. I think in memory in cinema. I even like make my breakfast in cinema, like a like a Sam Raimi montage where I'm going like <laughs> boom, boom, you know, like cereal, you know, like that's how I see life. And 
And I thought like, you know, in a situation like this and what makes this very much a Lovecraft story, while it doesn't have tentacles, sorry, um, is the fact that you have characters telling stories. You have stories in, in, in the middle of stories. And also in film noir, which this very much had a lot of DNA of, it felt like there was always like that elongated flashback that's like, you know, I had it all. And, you know, what you ultimately see is a, a subjective version of Elizabeth Derby's story told to her best friend. And if she's recounting this story to her best friend and she grew up roughly around the same time I did when sexuality and like the sexy side of sexuality was always conveyed in cinema looking like an Adrian Lyne film or looking like a Paul Verhoeven film, you know, I felt like that's a perfect opportunity to subjectively present her story looking like an erotic thriller. That's how she would present it in her head and maybe to her friend. That's why, you know, the men are more objective, uh, objectified <laughs> in the film than the women are. You know, I've gotten some reviews where they're like, not enough nudity. I'm like, well, the guys are pretty nude, you know, for the most part. <laughs> the women might not be, but I, whenever I've projected or thought about sexual relations in my head, I'm not focusing on my butt. I'm focusing on my partner's butt, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to make them look sexy in my head. So that's really where the the impetus for watching a lot of these films, everything from, you know, uh, Body Heat to Body Double and Dress to Kill, uh, Last Seduction, um, Basic Instinct, of course. These were films that we were, like, or even like Lost Highway, David Lynch's Lost Highway. A lot of the, the color palette from that film, we literally ripped from, sorry, Uncle Dave. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it was... I, I think I dream and I project in cinema. And I think a lot of people do too. And um, I think Elizabeth Derby did as well. And that's why that whole flashback sequence should personify what that should look like. And if we, you know, did the, uh, the laser drill into her head a la reanimator and looked inside, you'd probably see like, you know, Uli, an Uli Lamel film, or you'd see like uh, Madonna in Body of Evidence or something like that. That's what she would have probably been thinking of when she was recounting the story. So, so you, that's an interesting take on it because you do, you do get the feeling because she is recounting the story. So there is the bit mm -hmm. of that, uh, that, that narrator issue where, where what is true, what is not. And, and mm -hmm. there's the, there's also just like the strong undercurrent of female empowerment throughout the movie, which could come from the perspective, you know, that this is Elizabeth Derby's uh, take on everything. But there's just other things like you don't even you're not even very subtle with it, which I which I applaud you for, where, you know, the the main the entity, whatever you want to call it, is basically saying, mm -hmm. like, it's a lot more fun to be a woman. You have a lot more power. And I this is great. Why didn't I do this years ago? You know, and so was that always part of it? And and also with the with the sex, too, you, you mentioned it's not as gratuitous possibly as it could have been. So. Like, was that always like your your idea of having this female empowerment, not exploited, uh, exploiting any sex stuff or, you know, the gratuitous boobs or whatever? Was that always just part well, of your your mission? Yeah, 100 oh, percent. Like that was when I like when I pitched it to and my, my writing partner and I pitched it back to Dennis and Barbara. Um, we like I think, the you know, the word or the, the phrase female gaze was festooned across that entire eight page document. Like I want like, cause in most cases, when you look at those movies and still to this day, you know, most films have the, uh, the subjective point of view of a male gaze. 
Um, that I mean, that's why in certain movies from the, the 80s and 90s, you know, there's a little more leering on the women, you know, which I guess was just a product of the times, the product of the filmmakers. And I felt like, you know, if we do gender flip this, we have to approach it as if, you know, this was truly coming from a female gaze. Now, let's be completely honest. I am a male. I have a penis, you know, but I have, especially in the last, you know, couple of years and, and even throughout all my movies, like I've always veered towards the female gaze in one form or another. And I felt like this was a perfect vessel to even explore that. And even my, my own, you know, like personal predilections and my own sexual fluidity, like to explore and delve into those avenues, but do it through film and do it through a story. And, you know, originally we were going to have um, right up to the last second, we were going to have a female DP. We had a female production designer. Um, you know, we had uh, a, a woman in our post-production office, like a department. We, I mean, our produce, one of our producers is, is a woman. Like I tried everything I could down to like, you know, possibly, you know, cutting my own dick off just to have the opportunity to give a female gaze perspective to this as much as possible. That was always like our mission statement down to the script stage when, you know, like that moment when uh, Asa says like the future is female and the fact that he's, I love the fact that the ent this entity has had a pulse on the culture so much to realize <laughs> that he's one, he's one phrase short of saying like, I get the me too movement. And you know what, right now it's probably better off if, you know, if I want to be able to jump from body to body, you know, Back a couple decades ago, or even a couple years ago, it was probably better to be a guy. Now it's better to be a girl, and I would much rather be able to keep my power going and keep the keep my survival instinct going if I stay in a woman's flesh. And let's be honest, you know, and I think you know, most women can probably tell us that you know the female orgasm is probably much better than the male orgasm. So once he, you know, once the entity realizes, like, man, it is much better to have an orgasm as a woman. Um, I, I just that that just tickles me pink, no pun. That um, <laughs> that we can we can explore that that this entity, you know, who is not there for, you know, world power. This isn't the dead zone, you know. Like he's not trying to be. It's not trying to be, um, you know, the, the president or trying to take over the world. It's just trying to survive. But at the same time, it's also trying to get its rocks off. I love the fact that you know we have a a, a lower stakes antagonist that is really just jumping from body to body for its own selfish, nefarious purposes. That, that to me is much scarier than someone who's trying to take over the world, you know? And, but the, the idea that the entity is like practically non-binary at, at, at any point at this point where it's not, it's going like, I don't even know what I am anymore. You know, there, there was something, all of that was just so exciting to explore in a way that I don't think we would have been able to do that if it was two men, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about uh, the future of this because I, I hate, I, 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 I say this cause I want to talk about the future, but I also hate talking about franchising horror films. Cause I think it's just such a, a thing now, you know, you make a horror movie and you think like what's next, but yeah. th there's something about this story where you have this entity that has lived for centuries, you know, there are options where you could go back in time and tell like almost like an anthology version of this, where it's just a whole new set of characters. Stop it. You can't oh. talk about this anymore. No, no, you can't. No, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm half joking because, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to tether this into the Miskatonic verse is that, you know, HP Lovecraft was one of the original world builders, at least in genre. Um, you know, years before Stephen King was doing it years before any other writer was like, 
creating a world of their work that Lovecraft was doing it through Miskatonic and Arkham and Hulu. Um, he was making a bigger world and telling these smaller stories in it. And that was one of the things that I, because I do love world building. I love when, um, you know, especially like in the phase one and into phase two of Marvel, I thought that was genius that they were bringing us all together. And I thought like, you know, if we do this, then who's to say that, you know, Herbert West couldn't traverse through this storyline if we want. But that, that's a little bit on the cheeky side, not to say that I wouldn't do it, but it, I like the idea that there's the possibility of this like world around the story. But more importantly, you know, even when we were first talking about this, I'm like, God, how great would it be to find out others? This, this entity has stories. And you're right. Like you could, you can plop the entity into any other decade. I mean, imagine what he like what this entity would have been like in the seventies, or imagine what it would be like even after this all happens. You know, like you have this woman, you know, that that the entity, you know, is stuck in a padded cell, and the entity is out. Like, who's to say where the entity can go next? Who's to say what kind of person? Who's to say what age? The, you know, this this person could be this next suitable flesh. So, oh no, I we've been discussing it a lot and <laughs> to me, but, but at the same time, you know, and, and I've been wary on this to, you know, to our producers who of course, you know, like I get it. Like we want to be able to continue the story and try to be, make it as lucrative as possible, but it has to be the right story. It has to be the right continuation. And um, you know, we, we have a lot of ideas. There's probably, there's actually, if I turn this, uh, <laughs> this board over a little bit, you'll see a little bit of a list of some of the ideas that we've been coming up with, but, you know, the, the, I think the thing that's really important to us is as long as it advances the, the the entity story and like the last thing that I would want is to create the entity in a way that it would turn into Freddy Krueger by, by Nightmare 4, where I don't want the audience to root for him, it, her, who knows, um, or who knows, and like, honestly, like, who knows what the evolution could be, but there is something exciting about like, there is worlds of stories that this entity has been through, not just in the confines of 33, um, whatever the street is. I, I'm, I can't even remember anymore, but like within the High confines street, of this right? little, Yes, you got it, thank you. Um, <laughs> but, but within the confines of this story, there is much more that we could tell. We just gotta find the right ones to do it. That's awesome. That's that's all I was gonna say. I was just saying like, you know, my mind was racing. I was no, like, oh, you but can you're do onto it. something. I, I like the fact that you're thinking about it. You know what, yeah. other people have too. And look, when you make something that makes people think about like what what would happen before or after, I feel that we've been successful in at least piquing the interest. Like when I did Mayhem uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we were starting to talk about sequels. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, our two leads are, off into the stratosphere of Hollywood <laughs> right now. So I don't know if we'd be able to do it with them, but if you took that virus, the ID7 virus, and what happens if you plopped it into a mall on Black Friday, you know, like like right before, you know, the, the, the Christmas season begins, what would happen there? Or what if you put it in a war campaign? Like whenever audiences tap into the lore of it and they can start seeing the possibilities and if anything, maybe have it relate to their own lives, like that to me is a true success of, of any story, whether it's on paper or on film. Great. So I, I want to take a quick detour while I have you because sure. 
one of the first things I ever saw that you directed was Truth and Journalism, which for people listening, oh. if they don't know, this is a Venom, I guess, for lack of a better word, fan film you made. It's a short. Sure. That is what if you took Venom and mixed it with Man Bites Dog and it uh, came out, what, about a decade ago now? It's It's been a while. And I'm curious now because having now retrospect and, and and hindsight, we've seen Venom movies come out. We've seen what the studio take on it is. Does that make you feel just a little bit better knowing that you had this like wholly original idea and, and that it still holds up to this day? Well, first off, thank you for watching that. That truth in journalism, I still think is one of the best things that I've ever done uh, just personally for me. I was in a really bad place when uh, I got the opportunity to do that. Um, I was in between Knights of Badassdom and Everly. And I was in a really angry place. And I was really just like, I was I was not, not doing too well. And the opportunity uh, through Adi Shankar, who started doing these um, kind of fan films, when he did the Punisher uh, fan film with Tom Jane and Phil Joanneau, who I love as a director, and they made such a, an amazing little piece out of that. Uh, he asked me, he's like, well, would you do one? And I, I honestly, when I was in the room, I was, and part of my French, I was like, I give no fucks right now. You know what? Hmm, let me think. Because he asked, he's like, you know, what would you do? I go, I would do Venom, but I would shoot it like the Belgian found footage film, uh, Man Bites Dog. What do you think? Thinking he would never go for it. And then he was like, I'll give you 10 grand. I'm like, really <laughs> oh shit i i didn't think that you would actually go oh crap oh i guess i gotta make this now and i love that movie so i love venom i love eddie brock so much and i love man bites dog and i thought that was the kind of black sense of humor that i was really into at that moment but just in general i'm, I'm always kind of skewing towards like the wrong kind of humor and uh and and making that was such a joy Honestly, Charles, like I, I was, I was in heaven and I kind of got to make amends for working with Ryan Quanton because he was, you know, in Nights of Bad Astem and I felt so bad how that turned out, but I had such a fruitful relationship with him and such a great working relationship with him. I was like, that was wasted on that, that movie. We got to do it again. And I thought, and I also knew him and I can say like, Hey, could you help me out with this short and maybe <laughs> do it for like next to nothing? And he's like, Oh my God, I would love to, but to personify Eddie Brock in a way that, you know, at, at that point, 2013, you know, we hadn't had the Tom Hardy version of Venom and everyone kept like hinting at all the different Venoms that might be in the Marvel universe, might be standalone films. And I wasn't, the one thing I wanted to make clear of it with um, just the way we presented it was it was not a calling card. I was not trying to make a fake trailer to get the job. Um, I just wanted to create something that had an original IP but make the IP the twist at the end, you know, because if you watch it, you don't know that it's a Venom short until unless you're very keen on like the little in jokes that we have in the background and someone talks about a spider and, you know, there's these little quick mention to... of the bugle. Yeah, exactly. Like the, there were all these little things that um, in uh, like if you knew Amazing Spider-Man 298 to 300, that's where they introduced Venom. So we literally put it into that time frame, I believe it was May of 1988, and you know, to be able to recreate that world on no budget, there's there's something very freeing about, and this happened with Suitable Flesh as well, because I had just come off of a of the biggest budget film that I'd ever done with um, with Point Blank for Netflix, and you know, sometimes more money, more problems, 
And when you can scale it all back and when you have no one else to, um, to account for, but yourself and to be able to just do it where like I had full creative control. The only, the only thing I didn't have, not, not have control over it, but um, the producer Adi really wanted to be in it. So he's the guy at the end where the we do the film. little, um, yes. Yeah. So that was him and he was a blast to work with. Um, but that was something that was so personal to me. And when it came out and we premiered it at um, Comic-Con and the reaction from the fans was so great that they were like, they went, all right, this is not exactly the Eddie Brock that we expected, but that's not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I got to, you know, pay homage to Man Bites Dog, which was a huge movie for me. So to see how Venom has turned into what it has, look, I'll be the first person to tell you, man, like Tom Hardy is, batshit crazy in it and he kind of needs to be um you know if i if i was ever given the opportunity when they run out of other filmmakers at sony to possibly do it then i would love to you know jump into the fray but just to be able to have my take on a character that meant so much to me back in the day and still does today was such an honor and such a gift and you know i still look back at it and i find it's like one of the things that like i'm really really the most proud of that i've ever done that's awesome. Yeah, I uh, just in prep for this, I I had I remember 2013 when it came out because it made such a big splash, and that's yeah. saying something a decade ago. People don't remember that, and um, but yeah, I, I rewatched it recently, and I was like, oh man, it oh, still is great. You. So still yeah. holds up, and Quantum is so fucking he good is. in it too, and the fact that I was able to put all the needle drops in there and have all the little in jokes and everything, but the fact that we were even able to replicate the look of man bites dog that like yeah. 16 millimeter reversal oh god it was so much fun to do that and to set like the end to the 80s music as well <laughs> play with all the tropes of like what found footage was back then when the when the boom guy gets killed and then the sound goes out like man that was so bla such a blast i think i need to make truth in journalism too immediately i would i would i'm there i'm there all right well thank you so much joe lynch for talking with me about all oh, this dude, random thanks. stuff but I got to ask, wait, so I see the amazing Die Hard poster that you have. Oh, yeah. What's the other one back there? RoboCop being crucified. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm a huge RoboCop fan. As a matter of fact, I, to... I just named my okay. kid Murphy. <laughs> oh, dude. Okay. So really quick before I have to jump off, two things. One, did you watch the RoboDoc? Yeah, uh, I reviewed it. Fantastic. I loved it. I, like, I, I wish there was eight more episodes. I Seriously, I was so blown away. Um, so fun fact, I was commissioned to create, I pitched an idea to Machinima that ended up going to MGM of creating a show for Machinima called RoboCops. And what it was, ready? It happened after RoboCop 2 when OCP, their stock, um, their stock went to kaput because of what happened with RoboCop 2. So what do they do? They, they, they decide to put all of the video uh, taps from RoboCop uh, HUD on TV because they had no other programming and it becomes a huge <laughs> hit. So it's it was essentially it was cops in the world of RoboCop in you know in old and new Detroit in 1988's version of the um, of uh, of the future. And one of my did you ever hear the word uh, predator? I mean, it's like a producer and editor that they that the people would hire just to save a little money. Yeah. So. One of my favorite like fake docs of all time is Spinal Tap. And I love the running joke that they keep losing drummers because the drummer keeps dying. And I thought like, how funny would it be if they had to send a, like a producer out with RoboCop and he keeps dying? 
So they have to literally deputize the, uh, his partner, but he's a producer. So they call him a professor. And we, I wrote eight episodes, dude. It's one of the, my favorite things of all time that I wrote. And then MGM got swallowed, like Machinima fell apart and MGM got swallowed up by another conglomeration and they ended up doing the remake. I still, to this day, hope that I can try again with it because you can, I mean, RoboCop is so classic that it's not like we go, well, we've, you know, we've done RoboCop before. It's like, no, but not, you can still do it and tether it to Verhoeven's RoboCop. I even got Verhoeven to sign off on it. He was like, he, he, he loved the idea. He's like, yeah, yes, go on and do your thing. You know, it's like, <laughs> it was, and, and we got Ed Newmeyer and, uh, uh. To, to approve it too. Everybody was on board and it was just, you know, company, typical fucking company politics that gets in the way. The old man you know, strikes again or what have you. But um, so I, I had to share that with you. As That's a, awesome. As another, yeah, no, that uh, makes my day. That really disciple. does. Yeah, no, I, I'm a big RoboCop nerd. So that, that makes my day. Yeah, the documentary is fantastic. Anybody listening, watch that. If I mean, it's six hours of RoboCop. What else do you need? It's great. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. Well, Charles, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you for watching the movie. And uh, thank you for being an amazing RoboCop uh, like, <laughs> uh, aficionado. Wait, was it the adopted uh, kid that you named Murphy? Yeah, Murphy. That kid is going to be a fucking badass man yeah and oh and God. and we we gender swapped the name it's a, a female name now so oh, yeah so cool murphy wow. murphy yeah all what, right oh my god i can't wait like i can't wait for the day that you show her the movie <laughs> well my wife and i were talking about that because i saw it at an entirely too young age i think most people around oh, my age so did. dude i saw it at 11 and like <laughs> half the only thing i watched was all the gore going cool i had no clue that it was a satire at all I, th so, I think there's yeah. something to that, that how RoboCop shaped a generation of people like us. But, uh, but oh, yeah, my, my wife is like absolutely not at, at, at any age. I think I think we said something like 14, 15, something it's like a that. Good age. But, yeah. Very, very good age. All right. All right well, I, I got to let you go. But thank you so much. Thank you so much, Charles. I'll talk to you soon. Uh,